I'm a firm believer that if the brand is healthy, if the brand is growing, what I mean by that is it growing in relevance to the customer, value to the customer, then finances will follow, sales will follow. You're listening to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast with professional speaker, coach, and consultant, Nicole Greer. Welcome, everybody, to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. My name is Nicole Greer, and they call me the Vibrant Coach. I have an incredible guest with me today. He is the author of Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith, Cows, and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand. This is going to be an epic podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about the author, Steve Robinson. Steve is a consultant, an author, and a speaker on organizational culture design and leadership, brand strategy development, marketing planning, and distinctive advertising principles. I bet you know all about the cows. So Robinson <laughs> is a for, don't you love it? Robinson is a former executive vice president and the chief marketing officer of Chick-fil-A Incorporated. And he did this from 1981 to 2015. Prior to joining the company, Steve was the director of marketing for Six Flags Over Georgia Theme Park in Atlanta, and this role was preceded by marketing positions at two other Six Flags properties and communications manager at Texas Instruments. After beginning his career at Chick-fil-A as director of marketing, Steve went on to serve as vice president of the department before becoming the chief marketing officer. In his most recent role, he was responsible for overseeing marketing, advertising, brand development, menu development, and hospitality strategies. He is so worn out. But worn me out. <laughs> During Steve's tenure, Chick-fil-A grew from 184 stores from 1 million... 100 million to 2,100 stores, and don't miss this number, 6.8 billion, and it became one of the most iconic brands of our time. Woo, and I'm worn out from reading all that good stuff. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks. Thank you, Nicole. It's a treat to be with you. It sure yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, they're, they're not missing me at all. Uh, this past year, they hit 20 billion in sales, so they're still rocking and rolling. I know that's right. I was just there yesterday. So I'm contributing to the whole thing. I'm, I'm part of the process. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm delighted to have you on the show. And, you know, the first question I ask everybody that comes on the show is, what's your definition of leadership? So I just want to throw out that question and see what you think. That's an easy question. Okay. Um, well, I think the simple answer for me is uh, turn around and see if anybody's following Absolutely. I think, I think great leaders uh, earn followership. I think for me personally, my lead, I, took, I think the greatest pleasure I took in my leadership was finding other great talent, empowering them, and hoping that they'll grow to be leaders as well. So great leaders, my po second point is that great, great leaders produce other great leaders. And I was very privileged to uh, work with some awesome people, and many of them are now playing significant roles at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I was reading your book, obviously. Um, and again, everybody, the name of the book is Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, How Faith Cows and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand. And uh, Stan Richards, who is the gentleman and the uh, marketeer who helped you put together the cow yeah. uh, program, right? He yeah. said you were a uh, leader who was respectful and inclusive. And I love those two words. So how does a leader uh, show great respect for their people? Well, I think first by, um, this is going to sound simplistic, and I learned it the hard way. First, by keeping their mouth shut and listening, uh, listening to people. Let, hear them out, you know, let them express their thoughts, their ideas, uh, don't prejudge what they're going to say. Don't cut them off short. And I have and I have all the background experiences where I did that. Uh, I learned the hard way. But I, I really do think um, uh, the best way to show respect is to be a great listener. And the second one, then, is to ask a lot of questions and let people demonstrate how they can contribute. I think the, the, other, the other aspect of respect is that I'm a firm believer that every one of us walking on the face of the earth was created by God and for his pleasure. And how do we unleash the, the personality and the embedded 
uniqueness in every person. And so part of, I think, being a respectful leader is also growing to know, trying to grow to know your people. You know, what makes them tick? How do they think? What are their strengths? Even what are some of their weaknesses? And, and playing, playing to their strengths and then encourage them to work on the things that would actually make them a, a greater contributor or a greater leader. So I, I think I think those are the top two things I would say, be a great leader and then um, empower people based upon what you see in them and give them a chance to really thrive. And what happened for me, Nicole, is over time, I was very fortunate to attract a lot of people who, as it turned out, were much better at doing what I was charging them to do that if I had tried to continue to do it, they were a lot better at it. And uh, in the process, creativity and innovation goes up, teamwork goes up. And the, the great thing for me was I got freed up to do the kind of things that not only I wanted to do, I got freed up to do the things that only I could do in my role, uh, which changed over time. And um, so there you go. That's how I'd answer how you show respect. Mm, I love that. I love that. And um, I also love in the book that you said there's three things that a leader needs to be building. One is the business. And so what I think you're talking about there is the, um, you know, the finances, right? And our assets. Um, Also, you need to be building the culture and building the team. So really a leader is leading three different initiatives. Yes. Yes. And I would actually start, I would probably change that order a little bit. I'd start with culture. Um, when I joined Chick-fil-A from Six Flags, I don't know that I realized how important culture was in an organization. Six Flags was a great company, had a great brand, but it was a very transactional-oriented, short-term vision organization. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the theme park business. Right. But um, when I got to Chick-fil-A, I started to understand there's another way to there's another way to think about the business, and that's first: why does the business exist? What what is our purpose? Implicitly, then, who are we trying to serve? In other words, who are the critical constituents of the business, and in what order? You know, is it ownership first, and or is it customers first? Is it staff and operators first, or is it customers first? So, understanding why we exist, and there's a whole chapter in my book about how we kind of nailed down why Chick-fil-A existed, corporate purpose. Got written in 1982 in a really very difficult time. Um, so nailing down why it exists, what the, the other key component of culture for me is what are the things that are non-negotiable? Now, some, some people use the word values. And I know a lot of people, you know, they'll work up values, put words around them, throw them up on a chart. But I think values are only important in an organization if people see decision makers using them when they make decisions. 100%. Uh, yeah. And, and the most powerful values are the ones that simply are not negotiable. And there were five or six within Chick-fil-A. We eventually got those on paper. And so the first, the, the first thing I would say that's critical is, is culture. Know why you exist. Know what is non-negotiable and know who you're serving, in what order. In terms of the health of the business, for me, it's not just finances. And again, this would be a little counter to what some people would say. To me, it's the health of the brand. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if the brand is healthy, if the brand is growing, what I mean by that is it growing in relevance to the customer, value to the customer, then finances will follow, sales will follow. Uh, Then you move into the whole issue of stewardship. And, and managing money and talent well. But those to me are the two critical components of a healthy business is a great, a healthy, growing, relevant brand. And then you manage the resources that that brand, quite frankly, the brand attracts. And that's what's going on right now with Chick-fil-A. So the brand is attracting a lot of, a lot of income and it's attracting an incredible army of talent. What was the third one? I'm just, just going <laughs> Yeah. So the biz, the culture, and the team. You're hitting on the all three of them. Okay. Yeah. So the team, yeah. I alluded to that earlier. Um, it's a cliche, but we, we don't achieve many great things on our own. I'm a member of the National Football Foundation uh, board. And one of the reasons I am is I love college football. 
principally because of what you learn in teamwork. I mean, it is a team game. Uh, yes, you have skilled players. You have guys that can kind of take you to the next level when you got a great quarterback or tailback. But at the end of the day, you better have those big guys up front blocking and a fullback who can block, or those those stars don't really get to maximize their talent. So for me, I've already alluded to it. I wanted to attract people who could do what we needed done better than I can if I continued to do those kind of things myself. And, and even in the case of the cow camp campaign, which I talk about in the book, I didn't do the agency search. I delegated the agency search to David Sayers and Greg Ingram. And I told them, when you think you have found the right agency, you come get me and let's go talk to them. But I'm trusting your judgment on picking the agency because they were the guys who were going to work with them day in and day out, not me. And obviously they picked, they made the right selection. Yes, they did. Yeah. And when I walked, into that shop when I walked to the Richards group, uh, I felt a similar culture to Chick-fil-A. I felt a, a family commitment to great creative, not just making money. Uh, the benefits of being privately owned by Stan. And it was, it obviously became a, a very, very good marriage for us. But that's just one simple example of, of letting uh, other people that are part of your team make big choices, make big decisions. Yeah. And and they're not going to always nail it, but more times than not, they, they will. Yeah. So I, I'm going to ask you about your biggest mistake because uh, mm. <laughs> because I think it's so important for people to hear that. Like, so we made such a great decision over here, but not everything you do is going to be perfect. But I want to say one thing about Stan Richards' group uh, in the book, everybody. I don't know if you can see it, but uh, in the book, he's got a picture of uh, the Stan Richards uh, agency having a stairwell meeting. Yes. And, uh, I just thought that that was fantastic. Um, so just the culture of everybody in the stairwell, we're having a meeting. Uh, you, mm -hmm. know, I, you know, I just mm -hmm. think that's fantastic. Well, he did that with all his clients. And his, his the point was he wanted everybody in the agency to know who their clients were. Right. They were not directly working with that client. And I bet we had, we had two or three stairway meetings a, a year with uh, Stan and his team. Yeah, and I love that. And I had my finger on the page. Hold on, I'm going to find it about um, the purpose. Because, um, okay, here, I got it right here. So uh, when I read the book, you were talking about how the, the time frame when this was done, it was in um, tough economic times, mm -hmm. right? Early 80s. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, when time gets tough, people, you know, they have to have a little faith. And so I love your purpose statement. Um, it says uh, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. And to have a positive influence and all to on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. What a beautiful purpose statement. Well, the background is that was written in 1982. Let me tell you what, what led up to it, because it, okay. it was a, it was a crisis period. Price of money was over 18 percent interest rates. Mm. You know, we're wailing the nation of teeth now when it's at six or seven percent. It was over 18 percent. Mall development came to a screeching halt. Well, so what? Well, that's where we were building stores. All of our stores were in malls. It just stopped. Retail sales crashed over 30%, including ours. So we had a serious cash flow problem all of a sudden. First time Chick-fil-A ever had a sales decline. To make matters worse, worse Truett had signed his own personal assets to back up a loan to build the first office building. Ten million bucks. Doesn't sound like a lot today, but in 1982, for a $100 million business, for a guy, a guy who has most of his assets wrapped up on a farm in South Atlanta, big deal. Yeah. And to make matters worse, we had run a promotion under my supervision, a pretty typical fast food commercial with, I mean, uh, not promotion with coupons and in newspapers and direct mail and it was within the first 12 months I joined the company, and it blew up the budget. Went over budget by $2 million. Again, that's the big mistake I was talking about. That's a big mistake, <laughs> and it was a huge mistake. So you got all, you got the price of money, you got declining sales, you got a corporate office building debt, and then here comes the new CMO piling on with a $2 million over budget. 
<laughs> and Troy Kathy, who was the founder, came to our young executive committee and he said, we got a serious cash flow problem. And I want to know what you guys are going to do about it. And of course, all of us kind of looked at each other and the other guys were thinking, well, you know, most of it was out of our control, except what, except what Robinson did over there. So we went off site for three days to figure out how we were going to try to stay afloat because it it was it was iffy. And by the end of the first day, we'd probably done all the things you would think we'd do. We froze hiring, we froze building stores, we cut the budgets, uh, we approved rolling out a new product called Chick-fil-A Nuggets, which we had no idea they'd be so popular. Yep, and adding soup to the menu, right? And adding soup to the menu. Mm-hmm. And uh, but by the end of the first day, it looked like well, we might might be able to manage this. And uh, Dan Kathy, who was Church's oldest son, was sitting there, and he said, "You know, we got over half of the staff and half the operators who have been with us less than two years. I'm not sure all of them know how we're looking at this issue." And what he was getting at was not just the numbers, but how we think about the business and how we. How we think about uh, what we think in the midst of this kind of a crisis. Right. And uh, he said, Dad, I'd really like for us to try to nail down a clear statement on why you get up in the morning. You know, why do you come to work? Why, why are we in business? Now, we all we we all had a sense of what made sure it click, but it had never been put on paper. And suddenly we have uh, not just a few dozens of staff members and operators. Now we we have hundreds. And that's when we wrote that statement. In less than two days, we crafted that statement to, to, to glorify God with being a faithful steward, etc. what you wrote. And it really captured three big ideas. Um, glorify God. Sure, it saw the business as a gift. Um, right, up there, right up there was his salvation, quite frankly. He, you know, he, he said, listen, all that I am and all that I have is in his hands. So I, I hold this business with loose hands. But number two, I want to make sure we're being great stewards of, of what we do have in our hands. And number three, let's do it in a way that it's going to have a positive influence on anybody that comes in contact with Chick-fil-A within the family or outside of the family. Three big ideas. And that corporate purpose uh, has stood the test of time. It had, not one word has changed. It still sits out in front of that first corporate office building. And I will tell you, Nicole, that over time, what really fascinated me about that statement was how practical practical it was because we were constantly running major initiatives and issues and decisions through that, that litmus test, that statement. I mean, we're about to spend X or do this uh, or hire people to do that. Is does does it all does it line up with this statement, or is there any aspect of it we're not sure about? And um, we tabled a lot of stuff, or we would wait, and quite frankly, made decision making easier. That's my real message for your audience. When you have clarity about why you exist, and as I said earlier, what your non negotiables are, decision making becomes easier. And the other benefit of clarity around that is that you're empowering everyone else in the organization to make decisions on their own. And right. people are the litmus test. Yeah. And people aren't going vertical with every big decision. They're in their own respective area, their own respective groups, they know what they know what's important and they know what to do. And so it's it's really only the biggies that represent some sort of astronom- astronomical shift in the business that ever reaches the executive committee. So that purpose to serve the business incredibly well. I was with a group of Chick-fil-A staff just last week, about 400, um, just on a, a little session of talking about history. And uh, I, I told them, if you have not studied Short Kathy, if you've not read the history of the corporate purpose, uh, if you haven't heard him talking about it on videotapes from past meetings, shame on you. Uh, because you, even though the, the man has graduated and gone to heaven, you still work for him because that corporate purpose hasn't changed. So, therefore, you still work for Church Catholic. That's right. And it's still, and it's still a family business. Now, it's a big one, but it's still, <laughs> it's still a family business. And yeah. So have- value, I can't overstate the value of clarity around purpose and values. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, the third point in here is to have a positive influence in all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. But one of my favorite, I'm a big fan of stories. I think they're such good teachers. Uh, so you have a beautiful story in here about a gal named Martha that wouldn't put a smile on her face. <laughs> Yes. And I just think that is fantastic because I do tons of customer service training and, you know, I tell leaders all the time, just, you know, get up from your desk, walk around, smile. People make small talk. We'll go the long way. Will, will you tell a little bit about? I will. I, I will. But, but first, I'm going to finish something. Another point I want to make about that two million dollar mistake. OK. I walked into Jimmy Collins office, who was the COO, about a week after that thing hit the market. And it exploded. And I apologize. I said, Jimmy, I, I was too aggressive. Quite frankly, I was probably arrogant. And as I think about it, we just did a, a promotion on steroids that looks like everybody else in the fast food business. And, I, and I, I'm sorry. And Jimmy said, well, don't worry about it. I already I spoke to Truett. I assured him that I'd been involved in the decision. And he said, we, we just invested $2 million in your education. You're not going to make that mistake again. Um, but but the other upshot of that, Nicole, was it completely reshaped how we looked at marketing at Chick-fil-A. We, we decided we're not going to discount or we're not going to coupon at Chick-fil-A ever again. We're going to take most of the money in marketing instead of spending it at the national level where we're actually far from the customer and far from the opera. We're going to funnel that money and that marketing support through the operators at the restaurant level. And that, that is still the model of Chick-fil-A. Quite frankly, it's an inverted model to most of the industry. But I don't think it would happen if it hadn't been for that mistake. Yeah. Now, sorry about Yes. Let, let me add, let me double tail on that a second time, because one of the things you said is because um, we we talked about what is your definition of leadership. And then you, you said you couldn't believe the amount of patience and grace these leaders yeah. had with you. Yeah. So two more great qualities of a wonderful yeah. leader, right? Yeah, uh, clearly, Jimmy demonstrated patience and grace when he told me that. Um, yeah. I asked him, should I go upstairs and apologize for sure? And he said, I wouldn't go up there right now. <laughs> he says, I've, take, I've taken care of it. He understands that you were not alone in that decision. So grace covered me. Right. And quite frankly, being that early in my career, uh, it taught me that I learned that they had not lost their confidence in me. And I found Chick-fil-A over time to be the most uh, empowering environments I, you could ever imagine. The yeah. ability to innovate and think outside the box was unbelievable, as you can tell by a lot of the stuff we did. Yeah, fantastic. Now, the story about Martha is not one that I personally observed. It's one that Jimmy tells. Okay. Um, and I think I give him credit in the book. Uh, they were at a grand opening early in, early in the life of Chick-fil-A in one of their malls. And... Jimmy and Trude are both there to help open the store, help train the new operator and his or her team members. And behind the counter, there's this young lady named Martha who she's just not smiling. I mean, right. she's doing her job, but she's not smiling. She's not really engaging with the customer. So Trude says to Jimmy, would you go over there and please ask Martha to smile at the customers? Jimmy does. I'll shorten the story. This this exchange happens two or three times where nothing nothing improves. <laughs> Finally, Troy goes over to Martha and he says, "Now you know you know you have got to really stop doing that." And she said, "Well, what are you talking about? You've got to you've got to quit smiling all the time. People wonder what what is going on with you." And she looked at him and he said, "Yeah, you you got an incredible smile and you smile and nobody they don't remember why they walked up to the counter." I mean, he absolutely psyched her into a smile, and sure enough, she she kept right on smiling. And Jimmy Jimmy's point was, people are much more when he tells that story. People are much more likely to follow through personal influence rather rather than position power. Jimmy was using position power to try to persuade her, and that isn't what Turret did. And um, he never, he never forgot it. He told that story hundreds of times, and he allowed me to put it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic little story. I love it. Yeah. And so um, 
I love in the book, you have a whole section where you talk about the principles of Chick-fil-A culture, and it starts with the purpose. Would you share a little bit more? I mean, I, I go places. I do, like I said, lots of customer service training and, and, and lead groups and leadership teams to think about their culture. That's what I do. And they're just flummoxed at like, how does Chick-fil-A do it? So I've got the, I've got the guy right here. Tell us how they do it. <laughs> I'll tell you how they do it. One is clarity about what purpose and values are. We've already talked about that. Yeah. But the hard work is to attract talent, to attract people who can live those things out. Yes. And Truett often said, including when he was interviewing me, we don't train culture here, we hire it. Now, there's, there's nothing embedded in that that implies discrimination of any sort. What he's really saying is we do our homework. We, we want to make sure that we attract people to the business that look at life and treat people the way we do already. And his point was that every, every hire we make, whether it's an operator, uh, an independent operator or staff member, is either adding to the culture or hurting it. And one of the great things about the Chick-fil-A operator model, where operators are sharing in the, the profit, profitability of the store 50-50 with Chick-fil-A, is because they have such an invest, they have such a vested interest in the performance of the restaurant and the bottom line. What happens? They spend more time making sure they attract great talent to the restaurant. So, if the home office is very, very diligent about which candidates they select to be an independent Chick Fil A operator, which they were and still are, if they're very diligent about that and they have picked the right operator candidate, the trickle down effect is the, the operators are going to attract great people as well. They're going to, excuse me, they're going to attract talent that think and behave like that operator does. The, the operators, have, because they have a vested interest in the talent, not only attract better talent for the short term, they actually invest in them, they help develop them. And a, gosh, a lot of operators, almost half of the operators joining the Chick-fil-A family today grew up in a restaurant. In other words, they were first attracted by an operator. And these young people matured and proved, proved their, their capability, fell in love with the business. But they wouldn't be in the business if Chick-fil-A hadn't first picked the right operator. And that's my point. So last year, I think they selected something like 130 operators out of over 10,000 candidates that applied. You better, when, when you have that many opportunities, you, hopefully you're making a lot of really good choices. Yeah, um, but those and I was with a couple of great operators just this past week. One was I think one was 28 years in the system. and Another one was 27 years. And Nicole, they've each given back to the business over 10 operators each. That's amazing. OK, so that's a long answer to how do you develop culture is clarity, but how you develop it is attracting and keeping the kind of talent that will sustain it, that will build it and sustain it. And in the case of Chick-fil-A, it's not only staff members, but it's those independent contractors in the restaurants because there are now something like 200,000 team members out there in those restaurants. Crazy number. Oh, crazy number. And if, if you or anybody else out there has a consistently nice, pleasant experience going to a Chick-fil-A restaurant, it's because somewhere in the chain of events back at the home office, somebody made a, the proper judgment in offering that operator the chance to join Chick-fil-A. Yeah. You know, on page 29, uh, you've got a little note in here. He said, Truett's motivation was clear. I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in your ability. After decades of observing great operators, I, I believe that Truett looked at two key traits, their ability to attract, develop, and keep great people, and their passion or their fire in their belly, as I like to label it, he looked for operators who were never content with the status quo and who are always looking to improve food, consistency, service, and sales. That's correct. Okay. I put a so big circle around that. <laughs> let me illustrate that. One of the guys I was with yesterday, I won't give his name or where he is, but one of the guys I was with not yesterday, but Friday, I've known him since he was in a mall restaurant. Uh, his sales on that mall restaurant his first year were probably about $300,000. And I'm guessing his income was maybe thirty or forty thousand. That operator today is running two restaurants and satellite locations around a college town. 
Last year, his businesses, business, his only businesses did 30 million in sales. And his income is seven figures. That's epic. That's wonderful. Epic. Now, I talk about in another place in the book, the part of the genius of the Chick-fil-A culture is this operator deal and the fact that it's never changed. Now, if Chick-fil-A was suddenly went public, what do you think a public organization would do? They would they would never dream of letting a guy running some chicken restaurants make seven figures. No, we'll give that to the to, to the stockholders. We'll give that to the stockholders. <laughs> yeah. Truett's attitude was the operators were basically a half a half net partner in the business. They earn it, they get to keep it. The other side of it was the other half was his. And he was he was totally at ease and peace. And so was his family with operators having an agreement that was open-ended generous. I don't know any other way to describe it. Uh, it was ingenious. It attracted great talent. But it's generous. And, and as a result, you don't have anybody trying to copy it. Right. And, and it magnifies, uh, you know, God, right? You know, that's a, that's a quality mm-hmm. of God, generosity. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's fantastic. Exactly right. Yeah. And so the other thing that is ingenious about Chick-fil-A, and this is on page 79, is your marketing model. And, um, and uh, I just want to say this before I read this um, is so I work with a lot of people who are very frustrated because they they know how to attract customers to their building, but they don't have a budget. They don't have it. They're not empowered to spend a dollar. I was working with a, a gal who is in business development and she says, I just want a banner. I just want a banner out front. That's all I want. And I can't get the money to get a banner. Right. So, right. You know, just something silly like that that might cost a couple hundred bucks or something. Uh, so this poor gal, you know, doesn't you know, she's on a corner where she could get a lot of drive by traffic. So anyways, here here's here's what you wrote in the book. I know you know what it says, but my leaders need to hear this. So years before Chick-fil-A became a national brand, we flipped the model for funding and executing marketing upside down. Even now, restaurant operators and market operator teams, not the home office, provide 80 to 85 percent of the tactical financial support for execution of brand marketing. We provide them with tools and training, but they finance the participation in the execution. And I'm like, what if we gave this gal a little budget? What would she do for her business? The operators, uh, both individually and as a group in their markets, are deciding how much money to spend on marketing their business, but they understand they have to do it within the creative box top that Chick-fil-A gives them, that we gave them. Uh, They can't run out and just create their own creative, but there's an assortment of resources that they can choose from on a digital marketing platform. And literally, we call it brand builder. So, yeah, I mean, these these contractors, independent contractors, are not just capable of running a restaurant. They're capable of building it. Right. And they are are motivated to build it. They're empowered to build it. And they're resourced to build it. And I alluded to it earlier, but that upside-down model that I described, which would be like this, is the complete opposite of the model in other fast food businesses where all the money and the control is at the top. And that really came out of the $2 million mistake, where we said, you know what? We're not going to spend all this money out of Atlanta. We got these great leaders in the restaurants. We're going to empower them. Now, that meant we spent several years developing resources so they could do it the right way. Uh, and the home office is still all about that. And the evolution of that, Nicole, was uh, that spread beyond just marketing. It, it, it spread to developing the hospitality model. Uh, it spread to how do we develop uh, digital interface platforms uh, with with customers. You, and you know, you go, you go through a drive-through at Chick Fil A. You don't talk in the squeaking box. You talk to a real person. Well, that that system was actually developed in the marketing group, but it was all based upon give the operator what they need to build their business. We'll do it. We'll do for them what they cannot do for themselves. They can't create the cow campaign. They cannot innovate menu items on their own. They can't build kitchens on their own. They, they can't even build all the back of the house technology to make a hospitality model like that work. We'll do that, but we'll let, we'll give them what they need to leverage their talent and the talent of all their, all their people. So I go through a Chick-fil-A today. 
I saw them walking around with that handheld technology capability to take care of me, ask my name, take my order, take my payment. I'm through there in less than two minutes. I mean, I, I was around when it was developed and I'm still amazed that they get the orders right. And they, they say my name, they can bring the order out to the car. Steve, here's your order. Anybody else doing that? No, no. no. And, they, and nobody's got to do it because yes, there's, there's incredible genius at the home office, but it only works because of the, the leadership in every restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. And I've, I've got a question for you. So my son uh, lived here in North Carolina, went to Appalachian State. He, day he graduated, he's like, Mama, you know how you say you're supposed to live your dream? Well, I want to move out west. So when I'm not working, I can go hunting and fishing. I said, mm -hmm. okay, let's let's figure out how to get you out where you want to go. So he applied for a position out in Billings, Montana. And so we um, have missed him not being around the corner, uh, but he's thriving, totally thriving out there. Well, he texted me because part of your book talks about how, you know, people uh, wait two days for the doors to open to the Chick-fil-A. So he texted me and he said, there's going to be a Chick-fil-A in Billings, Montana. I mean, like, this was like groundbreaking epic news. And so right. I get the updates, and he and apparently the line was around the building, messing up the traffic and everything the day that it opened. And the boy is so happy because he can get a spicy chicken deluxe. Good for him. Good. <laughs> I tell him I appreciate it because I have a pension program. Thank you. Yeah. And, and he, you know, but, but I'm curious, you're like, I was out there uh, Christmas ago and it was like 15 degrees below zero. So I, you know, you guys are gonna have to figure out what kind of suits you're going to put your people. in. Well, <laughs> you go through those stores, almost all of them now have um, permanent structure canopies and there's, there's heaters mounted in those canopies. Oh, that's they, fantastic. They, they can work you around. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, I want to ask you a question about um, generations, because uh, one of the things everywhere I go is people talk about, oh, all these generations and these young people and this and that. And um, and I'm not a big believer um, in separating people into generation because I feel like, you know, I agree with you. You know, let's just hire the person that has the right philosophy, core values, belief right. systems. That's going to help a lot. Right. Um, and that can be across in a, you know all the different generations. But you do have a little section in here uh, about Truett being part of the greatest generation. And so will you talk a little bit about that? Because there aren't there aren't many of those people in the workforce anymore, but they still are having an influence. And yeah. I'd like to hear your take on generations. Well, he was in the same group as my own father. Yeah. And if if the audience out there has not re read Tom Brokaw's two books on the Greatest Generation, I highly recommend them. Truett came back from World War II, and with his brother, they borrowed. I think they borrowed something like six thousand uh, dollars. They accumulated some more of their own money, and they bought this little house in South Atlanta. They put in six booths and ten stools, and that's where they started the Dwarf Grill. Yeah, twenty-four hour grill. Now, the reason I, I'd start with that because Truett didn't come back expecting anybody else to make sure he had roof over his and food on the table. We unfortunately have, I fear, grown a generation with too many who feel that somehow uh, the culture or the government owes them something. These people came back, I don't work, I don't eat. And that drove creativity it, and it, grow, it drove investment. And so when you look at the, when you look at the post-war late 40s and the 50s, Oh, my goodness. I mean, you think about the things that came out of the ground in America in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's um, I mean, I'm not going to start listening, just, but just go back and look at the sudden boom of technology, manufacturing, innovation, productivity and agriculture. Well, that's because you had all these, these greatest generation young men and women coming back. And they had to provide for their families and they had their own dreams of how they wanted to do it. And they innovated for sure. It was a restaurant business. And my for dad, my dad, he and a brother started a hybrid seed corn business in South Alabama. But nobody else was going to take care of them. And so I, I think 
part of what we benefited from having Truett around for so long was someone who don't work, don't eat. Now, let me illustrate it beyond him. He had three children. He had 12 grandchildren. So second generation, three, third generation, 12. I think fourth generation, there's something like 24, 25. Very early, he set up a policy with his kids and then his grandchildren. If you don't work at the home office and or you don't become a Chick-fil-A operator, you're not going to generate any money from Chick-fil-A. I'm not paying you to be just because your last name is Kathy. And in fact, he also had an additional rule. You you cannot become either a staff member or a Chick-fil-A operator until you've worked at least after college, expected. You've got to work somewhere else at least two years. I don't care where you work, who you work for, what industry it is, but you got to work somewhere else at least two years. Because he wanted them to come back to Chick-fil-A with some sense of what the world is like outside right. outside the Chick-fil-A sphere. And that is, I, I tell you, that, that is still the family policy. That's fantastic. Into the fourth, into the fourth generation. Yeah. And, and you say in your book, you say um, uh, they, your dad and Truett uh, had these three traits. And I guess that's what he's trying to do all the way to the grandchildren. Uh, you got to be hardworking, persevering, and incredibly loyal. Yes. That's exactly right. He would go the extra mile in terms of giving you room to make mistakes as long as he knew you were working hard and you were loyal. If, if he sensed someone was not loyal and was really not acting in the best interest of the business, he didn't have any problem dealing, that, dealing with that. He didn't have to do it very often, but he would. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think the other thing, too, that's so great about Chick-fil-A, um, that you had a li- just a little like part of a bigger sentence, but I just love this. He said, we operate equal parts, head and heart. Yes. So yes. will you talk a little bit about heads, head and heart well, and, I think and how you might balance it? Well, I think the evolution of that began with Truett. I mean, he was running a little diner. He didn't work in the kitchen. He worked at the counter. Um, he would go out of his way to find great talent to work in the kitchen. Uh, and many of them stayed for decades in that diner. But he worked the counter because he wanted to get to know every customer. And he'd walk around the dining room uh, and, and talk to them. My, my point is, yes, he was interested in growing transactions. But more importantly, he wanted to grow relationships. And I think that's one of the reasons he was so attracted to the whole idea of the operator model, where operators were vested in half, half, half of the profit of every transaction, where operators would just not look at people as a transaction, but as as customers, they didn't want to lose, you know. Right. So one of the best ways to not lose a customer is actually get to know them and interact with them. Now, when you're doing the kind of volume you're doing now, it's hard for operators to interact with every customer. But they're putting, they're still putting peace, people out there with a face and a smile interacting with every customer. Truett realized that if, if he was out actually interesting with, interacting with customers, he would have a sense when somebody was not only having a great day, he'd have a sense of when somebody was having a bad day. And it wasn't unusual for him to do something totally off the cuff, cop their meal, give them a free pie, go visit somebody they found out in their family that's sick. He just had a natural bent towards getting to know people. And it may be little things, but in some way, touched their life. Now, I think at the end of the day, he simply wanted to earn the right for somebody to ask, ask him, why do you behave the way you behave? Right. He, he give his testimony, am I right? That's it. That's it. But he never, he never soapboxed his testimony. Never. He earned, he earned the right to be heard. And he would only speak if you set him up. <laughs> if you, if you right. asked. So he's given every operator this, that same kind of platform. You know, earn the right to tell people why Chick-fil-A is different. So that to me is the there is a place for strong strategy and strong business discipline and stewardship. But there's also a a place to deal with people with honor, dignity, respect, you know, acknowledging them as part of God's creation that deserve those those kinds of, uh, you know, relational interactions. 
Right, right. Yeah. So at one point you were talking about uh, Truett and I just, you know, again, I pull little things out that resonate with me and I, I'm sure they resonate with my audience. But you said he uh, like I just, we just said he had a balance of head and heart intuition, which you just talked about. Right. Big intuition. Yeah. Uh, understood the analytics and was an inspiration to everybody that he met, which is the third part of the purpose statement. So he was just like a living, breathing, you know, somebody you could really, you know, allow to lead by example. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and start listing all the major decisions that I would take to him and say, Truett, I think we ought to roll out grilled chicken or waffle fries or college football or use cows to promote the business. But virtually every one of those, Number one, he would say, if you think it's right for the business, I trust your judgment. And number two, invariably, even the big ones like college football, never never forget three years into the first, the deal with the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl was how we, which is how we got started. We're standing on the field before the game. He's going to do the coin flip. Place is packed. I said, Troy, I want to thank you for, you know, backing me and my team up to make this decision to get into college football. I, I think we're on to something. And he stood there for a moment. He kind of looked around. He said, well, I don't see anybody in here that can't be a Chick-fil-A customer. And that was his intuition coming out. I mean, he was serious. I mean, right. I don't see anybody in here who couldn't enjoy Chick-fil-A. If they can afford, I mean, he's thinking if they can afford this game, they can afford a Chick-fil-A sandwich. hundred percent. hundred percent. He didn't need to see a bunch of analytics. He was a treat to work with. It was very empowering. I can tell you, he never called me his office one time to ask me why I did something that he didn't agree with. Not once. Now, there was, I'm sure there were some things like the $2 million mistake, but never did he ever do anything to kind of undermine his confidence in me. You know, I, I, knew, he, I knew he was still happy with what my team and I were doing. Yeah, he was a Steve fan. Steve, Steve and his team. He was. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, the the last little nugget I'll just throw out here is um, you said um, when you have this balance between head and heart, um, two things come: wisdom and a sense of peace. Yes. Well, first of all, he was not a big book reader, but I will tell you right up front, he was a big reader of the Bible, and he was a big fan of Proverbs. Oh, yeah, good stuff. And Truett, he did have incredible, <laughs> for a guy who never got beyond high school, he had incredible canny of making great decisions and encouraging us to not do something stupid, you know. And, and it wasn't just from experience. He, he, he just, I don't think he was just born with it. He studied, he studied, he did study other businesses. He studied other leaders. I don't think there's any question that a great source of his wisdom was from the, the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was, but it was also, he was also fun. You know, he, and that get, gets to the issue of peace. He, uh, he didn't lose sleep. He didn't worry about stuff. He told Jimmy and uh, our executive committee one time, he says, I don't, there's only one thing I worry about and that's positive cash flow. Nothing else I worry about. So in 1982, he was a little worried. Yeah. But but as long as our CFO can tell him, hey, pilot, cash flow is fine. We're good with the bank. We're we're paying down the debt. Um, in fact, we eventually got to the point where we had no debt. Yeah, that's he, incredible. He was a man. Of, he was a man of peace with himself and the world. He was he was in his world, and he absolutely loved having fun with people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in the middle of the book, he's got um, you've got a picture of uh, somebody stole one of the cows. And uh, <laughs> off of the sign. Yeah. yeah. So you got to get the book, everybody. You got to get the book Covert Cows, right? And Chick fil A, How Faith Cows and Chicken Built an Iconic Brand. It's by my guest, Steve Robinson. He was the former chief marketing officer of Chick fil A. And, you know, my people are like, oh, no, she's closing it down. Don't do it, Nicole. Don't do it. But I, I, I'll ask you one more question. So I, I bet you you have one little more little nugget, a little something, a story that you want to share to kind of tie us off here. What one more little nugget, chicken nugget, would you uh, share with me? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I would, particularly in our current culture, and I, not just culture, but even business environment, I would encourage people to go in 
to, to look at their career as a platform of influence. Mm. If you're just looking at your career, okay, how many years can I put here and I take a step to do this? It's, it's a career to imp, imp, you know, increase my cash flow or my position power. If you just look at your career as a ladder climbing exercise, I would urge you to step back and really think twice mm-hmm. about that because you need to think about what you're leaning your ladder up against. What, what, what are you basing that career on? And fortunately, I've, I learned that the Chick-fil-A corporate purpose is not only meaningful to business, it was meaningful to me. I didn't go to Chick-fil-A thinking I'd be there 35 years. I'd already had four jobs by the time I interviewed with Chick-fil-A in 1980. But I stayed because it was an environment where I could lean my ladder up on a, on a purpose and a culture and build not only a business and a brand, but build a platform of influence, build a platform of ministry for myself and my family. And so that's my nugget is what do you, what do you build? What do you want your career to be? What are you building your career for? Is it just all about you or is it actually designed, design it so you can help impact and improve the lives of other people? And very often that means you got to hang around. You got to be loyal and stay someplace for a while. It's hard to have impact on other people and help other people grow if you're only there three or four years. And that, particularly in the marketing arena, that's far too often the case. There's just too much turnover. People ask, why don't other organizations have corporate purposes like that? And why don't they last that long? Well, one of the reasons there's, it's not just because Chick-fil-A is privately owned. One of the other reasons is you've got too much turnover at the top. And so the next guy or the next gal who come in as a leader or either, you know, CEO or CMO, they want to rewrite everything. They want to put their fingerprint on it. Hang around and see what kind of personal influence you can really build. Because uh, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, when they put this, when the tombstone goes up there, there's, there's a dash, you know, there's the date born, the date you die. Well, the most important thing on the stone is the dash. What'd you do during the dash? That's exactly right. Yeah. So I, Truett had a significant dash. And there's no question that um, there, was, there was a great deal of me that wanted to emulate him. No doubt about it. Mm, that's a fantastic nugget. So just going back to what I underlined that uh, Steve wrote in the book. So be hardworking, perseverance, right? And extreme loyalty. So that's just beautiful. All right. So everybody, I've had a fantastic guest on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. And I know you enjoyed yourself. Will you please go down there and press that little like bu- button? It just takes a hot second. Do that. And then if you'd leave a little comment for both Steve and I, I would really appreciate it. Uh, Steve can be found at... At, uh, on LinkedIn, it's linkedin.com backslash S Robinson Consulting. Any yeah. other way that people can contact you if they want to reach out? Uh, that's probably the place to go. But the book is still on the market. They want to buy a book. It's it's still on Amazon. And uh, there's there's contact information in the back of the book, too. Oh, fantastic. All right. Let me give it to you one more time. Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, how faith cows and chicken built an iconic brand by my guest, Steve Robinson. Steve, I'm so grateful for you to be on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. It was fun. Appreciate it. Ready to build your vibrant culture? Bring Nicole Greer to speak to your leadership team, conference, or organization to help them with her strategies, systems, and smarts to increase clarity, accountability, energy, and results. Your organization will get lit from within. Email Nicole at NicoleGreer.com. And be sure to check out Nicole's TEDx talk at NicoleGreer.com.